Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 11th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. It's not easy for parties to succeed in the appeal of an IMR determination at the WCAB. The California legislature adopted as a standard that the aggrieved party must show that at the IMR level there was a plainly erroneous finding of fact based on ordinary knowledge and not expert opinion. And this week, an opinion after reconsideration demonstrates how this standard is viewed by a WCAB panel on reconsideration. In this case, Erlinda Cantillo suffered an injury to her back and knee while working for Amazon. Following her total knee replacement and lumbar spine surgery, she was using a walker to assist with ambulation and was having severe difficulties with activities of daily living. Her treating physician requested authorization for home health care four hours a day, four days a week, for three months. After the UR process, IMR determined that the home health care was not medically necessary and appropriate and declined to authorize the request. The matter then proceeded to trial and the WorkCom judge admitted the MTUS guideline, the PTP report, and IMR final determination into evidence. After submission, the judge found that the IMR determination was not the result of a plainly erroneous finding of fact based upon ordinary knowledge and not expert opinion and denied to reverse the IMR determination. But a WCAB panel rescinded the finding in order and substituted a finding that the IMR determination applied the MTUS initial approaches to treatment guidelines in a, quote, plainly erroneous manner, end quote, based upon ordinary knowledge and not expert opinion. It went on to order that the UR determination be remanded for submission to a different independent review organization or different reviewer in the panel decision of Cantillo versus Amazon. The panel cited the 2015 Court of Appeal published case of Stevens versus WCAB, which held that IMR determinations are subject to meaningful review in conjunction with the statutory standards. Here, the IMR reviewer relied upon MTUS provisions that home health care is selectively recommended to overcome deficits in activities of daily living and indicated when the patient is unable to leave the home without a walker. In doing so, the reviewer explicitly recognized medical evidence that applicant has severe difficulty with activities of daily living and ambulates with an assistive device due to those difficulties. Yet the reviewer concluded that home health care was not medically necessary without explaining how this evidence fell outside the MTUS or citing evidence that applicant was able to perform daily living activities without difficulty or ambulate without an assistive device, or was not homebound as her primary treating physician had opinion. 
Hence, the panel said it is clear that the IMR determination applied the MTUS in a plainly erroneous manner based upon ordinary knowledge and not expert opinion. In addition, in this case, the IMR reviewer relied on MTUS providing that a home evaluation is necessary to develop the home health care treatment plan as a separate ground supporting the conclusion that home health care was not medically necessary. However, the panel says the MTUS does not state that a home evaluation must be performed in order for home health care to be recommended but rather to ensure that such care is provided safely and correctly. It follows that the IMR reviewer's conclusion that the lack of documentation of home health evaluation provided an additional ground to deny applicants' home health care request was also based upon a plainly erroneous application of the MTUS. And in employment law, a new Court of Appeal decision highlights how important it is for the attorneys to properly draft settlement agreements when they resolve litigation cases. In this case, a staffing agency known as FlexCare LLC arranged for Lynn Grandi, a registered nurse, to work for about a week at the Eisenhower Medical Center. Under the terms of an agreement between the staffing agency and the hospital, the staffing agency retained exclusive and total legal responsibility as the employer, including the obligation to ensure full compliance with and satisfaction of wage and hour requirements. Nurse Grandi was a named plaintiff in two sequential class action lawsuits, the newer one against the hospital discussed in this appeal, and a prior one against the staffing agency, both alleging wage and hour violations during the time she worked at the hospital. The hospital was not named as a defendant in the prior action and did not intervene in it. The parties settled the prior action with the staffing agency, and the court entered judgment upon the settlement and the settlement agreement did not name the hospital as a released party. The nurse then sued the hospital in a second lawsuit based on the same alleged violations, and the staffing agency filed a complaint and intervention seeking declaratory relief in the new case. Both the staffing agency and the hospital argued that the hospital was entitled to the benefit of the earlier release and that the first judgment precludes the nurse from bringing this second lawsuit. Unfortunately for the defendants, the trial court found that the language in the release clause cannot reasonably be construed to extend to claims the plaintiffs may have against the hospital in this case. The court further concluded that because the hospital is not in privity with the staffing agency, as that term is understood for claim preclusion purposes, plaintiff's claim against the hospital in this case is not barred by the final judgment in the first action. A divided panel of the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court in the, 2000, uh, in the 2020 published case, Grandi v. Eisenhower Medical Center. 
Then the California Supreme Court agreed to hear the case and in its June 2022 opinion affirmed the judgment of the Court of Appeal. The core of this dispute concerns the issue of privity. Judgments bind not only parties, but also those persons in privity with the parties. Questions about privity typically arise when a litigation, a litigant attempts to use a judgment against someone who is not a party to that judgment, and the circumstances recognized as creating privity have evolved in appellate decisions now over time. The hospital and staffing agency contended that their position is supported by the Court of Appeals 2018 decision in Castillo v. Glenair Incorporated. Castillo concerned a temporary staffing agency, the agency's employees and its client, and two sequential lawsuits filed against the parties for labor code wage violations, all similar to the case here. The Supreme Court, however, distinguished the facts in Castillo such that it was not on point in this new case. In this case, the scope of the class action at issue in the second action against the hospital differs from the class at issue in the first case against the staffing company. The first suit involved non-exempt employees of the staffing agency placed throughout the state, not just at Eisenhower. The second suit concerns non-exempt employees of the hospital placed by any staffing agency, not just by FlexCare. The two groups of employees, plaintiffs, are markedly different. It is also worthy of note that had the settlement documents and release been drafted with different language, the second action here may have been precluded as the Supreme Court said that its decision on this issue is thus fact and case specific. The lesson here is for, for employers is that the wording of a settlement agreement in anticipation of possible avenues of additional litigation and liability is crucial. A federal judge rejected claims that the three largest U.S. opioid distributors ignored warning signs when they sent millions of pills to a West Virginia community, handing McKesson Corporation, Cardinal Health Incorporated, and Amersource Bergen Corporation companies linked to the opioid drug epidemic a rare trial win. The judge concluded the local governments did not prove the distributors failed to put effective controls against opioids being diverted to illegal uses in place and could not properly hold the companies accountable for billions of dollars in damages tied to the painkillers under state law. The judge conceded in his 184-page ruling that the opioid crisis has taken a considerable toll on the citizens of Cabell County and the city of Huntington. And while there is a natural tendency to assign blame in such cases, they must be decided on the facts and the law, not sympathy. The plaintiff lawyers argued that distributors ignored warning signs about excessive opioid orders from West Virginia pharmacies. But the judge found the firm properly provides a secure channel to deliver medications of all kinds, from manufacturers to 
thousands of hospital and pharmacy customers that dispense them to their patients based on doctor-ordered prescriptions. A company spokesman said that pharmaceutical distributors like Amerisource Bergen have been asked to walk a legal and ethical tightrope between providing access to necessary medications and acting to prevent diversion of controlled substances. The strategy of governments suing opioid companies by alleging they created a public nuisance has had a mixed track record. Back in November 2021, an Orange County Superior Court judge ruled in favor of four pharmaceutical companies after a bench trial. In a lawsuit brought by Santa Clara, Los Angeles and Orange Counties, and the City of Oakland. That same month, an Oklahoma Supreme Court overturned a $465 million ruling against Johnson & Johnson, rejecting the public nuisance argument. However, juries that heard cases involving nearly identical allegations in New York State Court against opioid maker Teva Pharmaceuticals and in federal court in Ohio against pharmaceutical chains including CVS Health Corp. agreed with the plaintiff's cases. Now, San Francisco's opioid lawsuit against Walgreens and a number of pharmaceutical companies commenced a court trial at the end of April 2022. Lawyers for San Francisco claim that ANDA, Allergen, Teva, and Walgreens promoted and distributed the powerful painkillers in ways that created a public nuisance that endangered the health and safety of the city's residents. The case is still underway in its court trial as of the end of June 2022. And now our crime report. A former Coachella Valley resident whom Israel deported after she and her then-doctor husband fled there to escape criminal prosecution, was sentenced to 97 months in federal prison for her role in a conspiracy in which insurers were fraudulently billed $44 million for unnecessary cosmetic surgeries. 70-year-old Linda Morrow, who formerly lived in Rancho Mirage, was also ordered to pay more than $14 million in restitution. Morrow, who has been in federal custody since July 2019, pleaded guilty last February to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and one count of contempt of court. Her 77-year-old husband, David M. Morrow, was also extradited by Israel in January 2020 and is currently serving a 20-year prison sentence. He pleaded guilty in 2016 and was free on bond awaiting sentencing when the couple fled to Israel. The federal judge imposed the 20-year sentence while the Morrows were living as fugitives, finding that the intended loss from the scheme was more than $44 million. The doctor's California medical license was revoked in January 2018. Linda Morrow helped her husband run the fraudulent billing scheme out of the Morrow Institute in Rancho Mirage and was the company's executive director. The Morrows submitted bills for procedures billed as medically necessary, but in fact were cosmetic procedures. The victims included Aetna, Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield of California, 
and Cigna Health Insurance, and a self-insured group of public entities that included school districts. Linda Morrow fled the United States with her husband in 2017 to avoid prosecution and failed to appear in court as ordered. She helped move $4 million from domestic bank accounts to accounts in Israel and used a fraudulent Mexican passport to enter Israel and a fraudulent Guatemalan passport while leaving there and applied for Israeli citizenship using a fraudulent identity. Israel deported her in 2019 and she has been in custody since then. The FBI, IRS criminal investigation, and the California Department of Insurance conducted the investigation into the Morrows. And in regulatory news, according to a new California Workers' Compensation Institute study, payments for medical legal services used to resolve medical disputes in California workers' compensation claims have risen sharply under the new medical legal fee schedule that took effect last year. In April 2021, the DWC implemented a new fee schedule that, for the first time since 2006, changed the payment formulas for medical legal evaluations and reports. And the increase in aggregate medical legal fees in the first seven months after this schedule took effect exceeded the 25% increase anticipated by the DWC. The old medical legal fee schedule had provided varying flat fee payments for basic and complex uh, comprehensive uh, evaluations. That was MedLegal 102 and MedLegal 103. And time-based payments for evaluations involving extraordinary circumstances. That was the old MedLegal 104. The new schedule replaced those three levels of service with a single code, MedLegal 201, for which forensic physicians are paid a single flat fee, plus $3 per page for record reviews exceeding 200 pages, and time-based payments for Subrosa video reviews. The new medical legal file schedule also continued to allow additional fees for evaluations by an agreed medical evaluator or those involving an interpreter and expanded fee multipliers to certain medical specialties. CWCI study compared the utilization and reimbursement of medical legal services rendered before and after the new fee schedule's April 1, 2021 effective date. The results indicate that replacing the three levels of evaluations with a single comprehensive evaluation reimbursed at a flat fee of $2,015 likely had the biggest impact on average payments. Basic evaluations, previously billed under MedLegal 102, accounted for about 40% of the evaluations paid under the new MedLegal 201 code. And the new flat fee increased the payment for those services by 222%. More complex evaluations previously billed under MedLegal 103 represented 18% of the new MedLegal 201 evaluations, and payments for these services increased by 115%. It was hoped that the new MedLegal fee schedule would lead to a redistribution of MedLegal services, 
with fewer supplemental reports. But these reports increased from 34.2% of MedLegal Services in 2019 to 37.8% under the new schedule. The average payment for a comprehensive evaluation that includes a face-to-face exam of the injured worker rose 52.9%, and the average payment for a supplemental evaluation rose 39.1%. The new per-page record review fee also contributed to the increase in MedLegal payments, adding an average of $1,917 to the base fee for comprehensive evaluations, $1,410 to the base fee for follow-up evaluations, and $1,437 to the base fee for supplemental evaluations. Physicians specializing in orthopedic surgery provided 53% of the med legal services during 2021, while internal medicine Physicians were a distant second, providing 9% of the services. One goal of the new fee structure was to attract and retain more qualified medical evaluators. And a review of DWC data showed that 211 new physicians joined the pool of certified QMEs in 2001, while only 18 became inactive resulting in 2,554 active evaluators, a 3% increase from 2020, however, a 1% decrease from 2019. Although farm and food production workers were considered essential workers during the pandemic, a new report claims that many of California's food employers endangered those workers and violated CalOSHA's COVID-19 guidelines more often than most other industries. The report prepared by the California Institute for Rural Studies, which was based on OSHA inspections from April 2020 through December 21, said, farm and food production employers routinely failed to provide workers with face masks, nor did they enforce physical distancing, or notify workers when there were COVID outbreaks at work sites. The report said farms and food companies had the most violations of all the industries, yet they had some of the smallest penalties, with the average penalty slightly more than $22,000. In response to the report, Kalosha issued a statement saying, it recognizes and appreciates the importance of this issue and is reviewing the California Institute for Rural Studies report and recommendations. A researcher with the Rural Studies Institute said, Calosha cited food production employers four times more than any other California industries during the first year of the pandemic, but food companies utilized the judicial and appeals process to try and reduce their penalties, and the fines were often reduced or eliminated. The report describes food production workers as those working in meatpacking, dairy operations, and agriculture, primarily black, Latino, and indigenous people, and often undocumented immigrants. The co-director of the Los Angeles-based Food Chain Workers Alliance, a national coalition of food workers' unions, said, 
California's food and farm employers are not very different from similar employers around the country. The 21.5 million farm and food workers make up the nation's largest workforce, and the lack of COVID protections is just one of their many vulnerabilities. She added that food workers have some of the highest rates of health and safety violations and high rates of wage theft. As the pandemic continues, the report recommends that state leaders and Cal OSHA officials strengthen paid sick leave protections, increase workplace inspections, and ensure that employers' health and safety data is more accessible to the public. Republican Robert Howell will face Democratic incumbent Ricardo Lara in the race for insurance commissioner this November after edging out Democratic Assemblyman Mark Levine for the second spot on the November ballot. Howell, who is a cybersecurity equipment manufacturer, bills himself as a Reagan Republican and, if elected, has pledged to guard against waste, fraud, and abusively inflated premiums. But no Republican has won statewide office in California since 2006, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was re-elected as governor and Republican Steve Poisner was elected as insurance commissioner. During the primary campaign, Laura touted his work related to wildfires, including helping create the first Safer from Wildfires framework and issuing regulations requiring insurance companies to use the framework in pricing. Laura said that there's nothing that substitutes for the experience he has had in this position while working directly with consumers and wildfire survivors. Democratic Assemblyman Levine conceded the primary election this Wednesday, acknowledging on social media that there simply weren't enough uncounted ballots left to change the outcome of the primary election. And in medical news, each year, authors of the Merative 15 Top Health Systems List conduct a rigorous analysis of U.S. US health system performance based on metrics aggregated from individual hospital data. The result is a list of the top-performing U.S. health systems in the nation based on a balanced scorecard derived from publicly available clinical, operational, and patient experience data. This year, Scripps Health in San Diego has been named one of the top five medium-sized healthcare systems in the nation by Meritive and the only health provider in all of California to be included among a broader list covering the top 15 large, medium, and small systems across the United States. The systems were chosen by Meritive from among 2,604 hospitals that were evaluated for their quality of care, operational efficiency, and patient experience. Meritive evaluated 349 health systems and 2,604 hospitals that were members of those systems. The best of them were announced in the online edition of Fortune magazine. The research was based on Medicare cost reports, Medicare provider analyses, and review data and data from the 
Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Hospital Compare website. Hospitals included among the 15 best systems achieve better patient outcomes, fewer complications, shorter lengths of stay, lower readmission rates, fewer health care-associated infections, lower inpatient expenses, and higher ratings from their patients. Based on the research, the care delivered by the 15 best systems resulted in 16,000 additional lives saved, more than 17,000 additional patients being complication-free, a 5% reduction in the healthcare-associated infections, and patients being discharged a half a day sooner than expected. The Scripps president and CEO said that Scripps is honored to receive this prestigious recognition once again and to be recognized as a top health system in the nation. He added that this is the direct result of a constant effort by its physicians, nurses, and employees to make sure the care delivered to patients is the best available. Scripps Corporate Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for Acute Care Operations and Clinical Excellence said that the honor comes after more than two years of coping with a wide range of difficulties posed by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So this is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.